0: welcome to searching for the question live Uh, my name is David Orban and I am very glad to have all of you following the show Uh, before we start I want to remind you that uh, yes we are live simultaneously on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter but uh, I also invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can of course also watch uh, previous episodes Uh, with uh, interesting people, hopefully saying interesting things uh, together with me. Now, given that we are live, uh, you can also ask uh, questions or make comments, and we will see them uh, together with my guest uh, as they appear, um, regardless of what platform they are coming from. And if they are relevant, we will be happy to, to show them and answer them as they come. Uh, we also have a discord community uh, and uh, you can uh, join that by going to davidorban.com/discord where we are uh, continuing the, the, the conversation around the themes uh, that are uh, from time to time covered in searching for the question live. Uh, you can also sign up uh, for my newsletter. And uh, of course, if you find uh, the show valuable uh, and the content that uh, I create together with my team, I invite you uh, to uh, become a supporter on patreon.com slash David Orban. Now, today what we are uh, going to talk about is uh, kind of a a big leap. Uh, We will ask ourselves uh, if it is possible to develop vaccine for COVID-19 in just six months and uh, uh, we will uh, do it uh, together with uh, Hannu Rayaniemi so Hannu very welcome uh, to the show and uh, let's hear um, before we enter into uh, the um, the thick of, of, of our Uh, of our theme today and uh, this huge challenge that you also described in a in a post more about you um, where uh, you are from originally which is uh, nice and exotic uh, where you are today (laughs) what is your your path and trajectory
1: thank you David I'm very happy to be here Um, I was born in Finland in a small town in uh, northern Ostrobothnia called uh, Ulivieska Grew up there and then uh, got very passionate about theoretical physics. Studied theoretical physics first in Oulu, which is a slightly bigger town uh, north of uh, Uliwieska. I see we are flying to Uliwieska there. That's and right. It should
0: be. I, I prepared this uh, beforehand. And uh, if uh, the gods of uh, Google Earth uh, <laughs> are assisting us, uh, uh, we should be going there. Otherwise, we can always uh, go. Uh,
1: manually, there you go.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, excellent! Uh, all right, um, <clears throat> there we go. So, How many people um,
1: in the Uh Around fifteen thousand, I think. That's actually uh, mentioned on the screen there. Um, so, oh, there so not a not a, not a not a huge not a huge town. Very peaceful, uh, a, a, but uh, a great place to grow up. And uh, um, one of the things that shaped my path there was uh, becoming very active in. Being a game master for a local tabletop role playing group, which actually uh, had quite a significant impact on.
0: Oh, you mean you mean the ones that you do with with um, uh, dice and, uh, and exactly. the physical cards or or. Was it uh, Dungeons and Dragons or was it Magic: The Gathering? Uh, what was it?
1: We played all kinds of uh, uh, games, so a huge variety. I think the, my group had um, a strong focus on very storytelling-oriented games, so so less about the game mechanics, but uh, more about creating interesting characters and interesting worlds. So uh, games like uh, Amber or uh, Vampire: The Masquerade or some of the cyberpunk uh, games, and 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 so on but um yeah, I think you can these are there are still very active communities around these games, so uh, so you can uh, but yeah, this was this was a very significant one, uh, a, um, which I think is one of those things that you very easily get into as a teenager because vampires and, are and, and rather these than cool outsiders
0: like this, uh, you played it actually with with physical uh, presence, right because this is, this is the video game, but right. the tabletop right. game is uh, is what gave you uh, the initial uh, the initial um, uh, thrust uh, for for a lot of storytelling.
1: That's right. right. So so the way these these games work is that you typically sit around the table. You uh, you have a group of players who create characters, um, and then you have a, a game master, or uh, actually forget now what. That's specifically called in *Vampire the Masquerade*. But uh, you have you have this uh, person who does not directly control a character, but who creates the world and sets the stage for the the players to um, have adventures in. And then uh, you typically meet for multi-hour sessions, uh, as, as like once a week, or or, um, or depending on your, your schedules. And um, and it's it's very much plays like uh, improvised theater. So there's no Pre-prepared script or anything like that. You, uh, the game master, describes uh, what's happening around the players, and then the players respond and and tell what their characters are doing. And then, um, if there's conflicts, typically there are there are rules uh, to resolve those those conflicts. Sometimes using dice, um, but uh, more and more, I think role playing games have gone more into. Into this direction of being quite light uh, and, and simple uh, with the rules, and just emphasizing different ways of social interaction. And um, uh, uh, I think there's actually a, an incredible future for this storytelling medium if we manage to combine it with augmented reality or online environments and things like that.
0: And, and, and uh, I think that uh, it is wonderful to allow the creativity and the the, the fantasy of the game master to. Uh, play such a, an important uh, component in uh, in 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 these games uh, because uh, too many games uh, require, as you said, following precise rules instead, mm-hmm. and and um, we enjoy them and we participate in them, but uh, we cannot have a lot of input uh, while this kind of organization really maximizes uh the the human creativity
1: absolutely and it's actually not even just the creativity of the game master it's it's not that the game master is the sort of mastermind behind everything but it's really a very collaborative experience that um emerges from the interactions between the game master and the players and and uh, and the players have to be equally creative in terms of uh how, how they get into the minds of their characters and uh uh try to express what the character might do in a given situation and, and often players also go on to participate in the world building they might come up with very elaborate backstories for the characters and um and so on so uh, yeah i think there is something quite quite unique about it and and then uh, and i i don't think we've yet unlocked the, the full potential
0: so so you were saying that you got into this uh, while uh, in high school or university in finland Mm -hmm. while also doing your studies in theoretical physics Mm -hmm. and uh, were you planning because uh, you were masochistic enough to do a full (laughs) phd Mm -hmm. Uh, and and uh, and what uh, a classic expectation is uh, with a phd is that you become a full-time researcher or maybe a, a teacher an academic uh, is that what you expected to, or, or, or you already knew that you you wouldn't uh, go on that path?
1: No, that was definitely my initial goal. I um uh, now my initial inspiration, I think, for studying physics was uh, reading science fiction, and especially uh, Jules Verne's Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. I think was the real uh, trigger, and uh, and I wanted to study a subject that would let you discover new power sources and create spaceships or, or, or submarines and things like that but then got swept away by, by the physics itself and um, and yes my goal definitely was to um, become a researcher to, to work on uh, really cutting edge fields like quantum gravity trying to resolve some of the remaining mysteries in physics uh, how to combine quantum mechanics with Einstein's general relativity so that we can explain some really uh, challenging phenomena like black holes and uh, the Big Bang. Um, and I did end up studying string theory uh, at the University of Edinburgh uh, to, to kind of try to make a dent on the theoretical machinery needed for that. But then um, started to get a little frustrated with um, the how far removed uh, the field was from, not, not even applications, just even, even experiments and uh well uh, quite quite famously
0: ahead, uh string theory is uh not even a, C- a theory it's a set of theories where you pull out of uh, the magic hat the theory that corresponds to any experiment that you uh, uh can 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 think of so uh, of course uh, i don't know the the specific area where you you specialized but uh, the frustration that you felt is is shared by an entire generation now maybe two generations of physicists who have hoped uh, in the 80s that quite rapidly we would arrive to the unification of of, of physics and and that didn't happen and now we are um, with a wonderful machine the LHC and we don't even know how to use it in order to get surprising answers. We got some confirmations, but uh, the theories are not there. The experiments are not there. It's a mess. So you got out.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I think there were there were uh, also other reasons to get out beyond just um, uh, being completely frustrated with the state of the field. Uh, there's a uh, if you if you your your viewers want to learn more about uh, some of the challenges that physics is facing now. Sabine Hossenfelder has a wonderful book called Lost in Math which uh, very well documents this crisis of modern physics where um, we have become uh, very wrapped up in complex theories that we can't experiment experimentally test and then the criteria like, theories. Uh,
0: uh, did you like uh, the trouble with strings? Um. By Peter, um, Peter White. No. Um. Uh, the guy who is uh, behind uh, Loop Quantum Gravity. Oh, Lee Smolin. Lee Smolin. That's right. Mm. Uh, that's uh, uh, that's his uh, his book.
1: Uh, let me, let I not think. I, 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 yeah, I don't think I've read that one actually. Um,
0: so the... so this is uh, this is Lee Smolin's book mm. uh, Trouble with Physics.
1: Oops. I see it recommends uh, uh, Lost in Math to you if you if you're looking at that that book yeah, as well. this is, this <laughs> is Lost in Math. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, yeah, I have not read the Lee Smolin book, but I think this is very much uh, in the same spirit um, yeah. of challenging some of the directions that string theory ended up taking. Um, no, I think that's a. Uh, uh, so uh, I guess one reason I ended up leaving the field was that I also. Started to feel uh, that I wanted to uh, solve slightly more practical problems uh, that that would have more more immediate uh, impact, and um, um, was inspired by figures like Alan Turing and John Neumann, who were able to play both the uh, very high end theory game as, as as well as then apply their talents to to solving immediate uh, challenges around them. Um, actually, actually, in a very Manhattan Project related uh, manner, of course, which uh, we'll we'll get to. But uh, um, so so yeah, so so I after my PhD, I teamed up with another string theorist, uh, Sam Halliday, and we started a um, what you could call a mathematical consultancy firm that then went on to solve much more applied engineering related mathematical problems uh, across many different fields from. Um, some life science work to to mobile networks to uh aerospace and and uh data science and uh, logistics and many other many other areas
0: and uh, and um after that uh you uh, d- did you go to singularity university as well
1: i you did have, that's right that's right that's there? right so uh so after i um left the um this, this mathematics consultancy company i i Explored briefly being a full time writer, my science fiction writing career had started to develop uh, at that point. I, but, I um, have to tell you, that was
0: a pretty good stint. Um, and I uh, only read your first, uh, mm-hmm. I have to read the other two, but I had a lot of fun with Quantum <laughs> thing. A lot of fun, thank you. It, it is a wonderful romp, uh, you know, putting together, um absolutely uh, plausible extreme scientific uh, consequences uh, as well as um, complex uh, societies as they evolve diverge and then get in conflict so i, I really had a lot of fun it reminded me of um, some of the early uh, vernor Vinge mm-hmm. uh, novels uh like um um, uh, oh my god, not uh, deepness in the sky, but the other one, a fire upon the deep, fire upon the deep. Uh, mm. Yes, fire. I, it reminded breeze. me of fire, fire upon the deep. <laughs> All right, so so, um, um, good. That was that was a good, uh, good, good stint, as you say, of uh, of being a writer.
1: Um, and of course I, I do still continue to write but uh, but I did felt at the time that I, I wanted to still do something real with uh, science and technology and uh, art University seemed like a good way to get a feel, feel for what were the big problems that people were thinking about and also to meet meet others who shared a passion for trying to to apply technology to solving very big problems. So, um, so that was in summer 2013. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was a very uh, life-changing experience, I must say.
0: And at the time, of course, uh, Singularity University was uh, uh,
1: holding the, the, the summer program
0: that uh, for um, 10 weeks uh, would have um, 80 people coming together uh, from all over the world, uh, half of them uh, had the tuition covered by Google, and half of them uh, would uh, either pay themselves or find a way to find sponsors to pay for their tuition, which was uh, considerable—thirty, uh, forty thousand uh, dollars—and um, and 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 then they would go through both uh, um, some theoretical basis of technologies and accelerating change and and all different areas. And then they would form teams to apply what they learned to change the world for the better. And then uh, these teams would have the opportunity to continue um, and uh, become part of what later would be the uh, SU uh, lab accelerator uh, or or not. And uh, And it was a very interesting and intriguing uh, model uh, today uh, as many organizations as uh, you had to completely pivot and uh, and as now now uh, delivers uh, online courses only uh, and uh, we will see how this uh, will develop um, through the next uh, phases and and so um uh, after su what did you do
1: yeah so uh being at su really cemented uh, uh, a an idea I had been thinking about, which was that I uh, wanted to do something related to synthetic biology um, that um, uh, already uh, with the previous company, uh, we had had some life science projects that had highlighted to me that uh, biology was probably going to be the physics of 21st century uh, in terms of uh, uh, the speed of progress and uh, also its impact on society and um uh, that definitely was confirmed by the things we learned at, at SU. And then um the uh, team team I formed at uh, or team team I was a part of at SU actually became a kernel of sort of the first incarnation of helix Nano which is uh still what'm I'm, what I'm currently working on. so um uh, so some of that uh initial team moved on and is, is doing other things, but uh, there is definitely a direct line from uh, so that uh, SU period to what we're doing now um, so there was a lot of uh, exploration and learning, learning on the way uh, I would say we, we um, stabilized in terms of the, the mission and direction uh, around 2016 when uh, my um, current co-founder Nikolai Arashenko, uh joined, joined the team where we really chose um, uh, oncology as a, a key application area for um, synthetic biology And um, uh, which at that point had also become quite a personal mission for me, uh, in 2015, I lost my mom to metastatic breast cancer, um, which was extremely frustrating, especially uh, having started to learn about the state of the art, what was possible in the lab, but uh, which wasn't yet available to patients.
0: Uh, and uh, and at Helix Nano, uh, you apply AI techniques uh, in order to improve the outcomes of uh, what uh, is a scientific approach for originally uh, developing cancer vaccines, and now you're applying the same approach uh, for attempting to develop uh, vaccines for COVID-19. Um, is that correct, And and how would you... Get into the next level of detail around what does that mean?
1: Um, absolutely. So, so in terms of what we do, it's uh, it goes goes beyond just just applying AI to to uh, cancer vaccines, although although we certainly draw upon some uh, machine learning tools as well. Uh, it's really more of um, uh, a um, design process. So, so what we uh, try to do is uh, first of all overcome some of the limitations of uh, therapeutic modalities like conventional drugs. Um, so uh, one amazing thing that uh, has opened up uh, in recent years through development of technologies like DNA synthesis, so actually being able to write DNA that encodes uh, a protein um, that uh, you can put into the human body is is that um, you can start designing genetic drugs. Uh, so what that means is that rather than putting a drug directly into the body, uh, you put genetic code that uh, gets the body's cells to actually make the drug for you. Um, so any biological molecule you you want to actually utilize to treat a disease, uh, you can make this way and. Um, so. And
0: uh, and actually uh, uh, tomorrow we will have uh, uh, Andrew Hassel as a mm. guest. Mm-hmm. And uh, Andrew was probably your uh, uh, your teacher at uh, at SU when you were there. And he is uh, one of the world's top uh, experts uh, in synthetic biology, uh, specifically in uh, in DNA uh, synthesis. So uh, wonderful. And and uh, uh, so Helix Nano. Uh, takes advantage of of the the possibilities offered by synthetic biology to design specific molecules uh, that can then be um, printed, can be mm-hmm. synthesized, and mm-hmm. then and then tested.
1: Right. That's r- that's right. So so it can and those molecules can be you know either uh, uh, things that. Get cells to produce drugs or they can be things that induce an immune response uh, against a virus or or against tumor um, uh, so basically very sophisticated vaccines and, uh, and there uh, you do have then this question of if you can actually get the body to do anything what should it do uh, so it becomes a design problem uh, and that's where tools like uh, machine learning uh, are very useful Um, uh, Another uh, very core part of synthetic biology is that uh, you can also look for inspiration in nature. Nature has already solved uh, a lot of the problems that you might want to solve. And and the other part of this explosion in life sciences is that uh, we also have an enormous amount of uh, DNA sequencing data available. So we've read the genetic codes of viruses, of of bacteria, of uh, all kinds of other organisms. And... You can actually look at this, uh, uh, all all this data as a repository of biological parts that you can you can take and uh, take and repurpose uh, and apply to solve whatever problem you uh, you need to solve. Um, One great example of that, of course, is uh, CRISPR or CRISPR Cas9, uh, which uh, is uh, originally a a kind of a bacterial immune system for uh, fighting against viruses that infect bacteria and we've just taken it to 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 and, and apply it apply it very broadly as this sort of gene editing tool so so there's this so i think synthetic biology is really about looking looking into nature uh finding a part that already does what you what you need to do and then refining and optimizing it further and maybe combining it with other parts uh, and i'm sure andrew will uh, uh have a view on how to think about this but uh, but that's kind of the helix nano definition of uh, synthetic biology um but and, um, and
0: so um when when did you decide that uh, given the the path uh, that uh, the uh, the company was on with the pandemic you really needed to change direction and and dedicate your your energies and resources to uh, trying to
1: address uh, the,
0: the the issues of the planned pandemic,
1: uh, the very specific date was March tenth, which now seems like a very long time ago. Uh, <laughs> which is actually the day after my birthday, so, so that made it also memorable. Um, but um, what happened, David, was I was invited to give a keynote at um, a large pharmaceutical company uh, on the future of the sector and uh, they had an ongoing uh, COVID-19 vaccine program and that then got me and uh, Nikolai my co-founder to look at more broadly what was happening with SARS-CoV-2 vaccines and we got quite worried about a couple of risks that we felt uh, most of the programs were not really addressing Um, and the two two areas, roughly, uh, which we can talk about more, where where the possibility of the virus mutating and evolving, and uh, also the possibility of um, so called antibody dependent enhancement that uh, if your immune response is not quite right, then the vaccine can actually make the infection worse, um, and these actually still, in our view, remain quite big risks for um, for COVID nineteen vaccine development. So so. so um... Uh,
0: the coronavirus belongs uh, is is a family of viruses
1: mm-hmm.
0: that also uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, is that the name I, I always forget the name of the virus itself. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Uh, so so uh, the the coronavirus causing the um, uh, the illness we call COVID-19. Mm -hmm. belongs to a large family that is also uh including the
1: common cold and there are also some some viruses viruses
0: causing uh, Mm -hmm. uh, the the symptoms that we uh, label common cold Mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, it is it is fairly worrisome that indeed we haven't had any vaccine for for the common cold uh, or those viruses and it could be an indicator uh, that it is hard that it is something that uh, either the viruses are as you said mutating very rapidly or our immune system is dealing with them differently so what you are saying is that um at this conference among the experts you were worried about this kind of uh, attitude, which reflects common scientific assumptions, but it is also a little bit self-defeating, or or accepts consequences that shouldn't be acceptable in terms of the availability of the vaccine or the efficacy of the vaccine,
1: right? That's right. So um, so so basically, it felt like uh, the Okay, so obviously we need a very rapid response to this crisis, and we do need to develop a vaccine as quickly as possible. And uh, so, quite rightly, many vaccine programs were launched around the world already in February, uh, March, um, and um, and are now getting to the clinical stage. But um, there is a trade-off between rushing and thinking things through, and we just felt that uh, a lot of these programs were not mitigating some of the fairly obvious risks up front. Um, so just to start with the risk of virus evolving, the, uh, so SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the coronavirus that uh, uh, causes COVID-19, which is the disease, uh, is uh, a so-called RNA virus or, or a rhinovirus. And these viruses do tend to evolve. Uh, they they get mutated more easily than DNA viruses. Mutations are how or rec- recombination events with other viruses is how we got into this mess in the first place. It obviously we, we had a uh, virus in bats and then it uh, recombined with a virus in another animal, probably the pangolin, and then uh, that gave it the ability to to infect uh, humans. So The virus is probably not going to remain the same forever. Uh, It is is going to evolve and probably with with vaccines, we're also going to create some evolutionary pressure for for it to to mutate and evolve. Um, So some of the things we had been thinking about uh, in the context of cancer vaccines were uh, exactly about this problem, how to overcome evolution of the thing you're targeting. Because cancer also evolves very rapidly, and one problem with cancer vaccines is that if you, even if you, successfully recruit an immune response against the cancer, cancer may evolve and uh, and you you then then hide from the immune system, and and you lose 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 efficacy, um, and um, we do have as as you as you're showing here, David, uh, evidence that uh, we are seeing some. Evolution of of the coronavirus already. Now, um, just to not 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 to not to make it too scary, uh, the coronavirus does not seem to be evolving as rapidly as let's say the flu, uh, where which which uh, uh, has a much higher mutation rate. And uh, to date, uh, there's only few instances of mutations that might be functionally relevant that might actually potentially make the virus more uh, transmissible or, and, and we don't have definite proof of that. Um, but um, there's also, of course, we are only seeing a very small sample of uh, the viral genomes out there because now now we have many millions of uh, cases around the world. And then like this data set here, for example, is just showing showing uh, 4,000 viral genomes. So So we don't necessarily have a full picture of what's going on. So, and and uh, the,
0: the reason you are ref- referring to the flu, um, the classic flu, the seasonal flu, is mm. because we have to try and build a new vaccine each year.
1: That's right. That is so, a
0: measure of the speed of mutation of the flu virus from one year to the next. The The vaccine you had last year may not give you coverage.
1: Exactly. So the the uh, hemagglutinin protein in in the flu virus mutates so quickly that um, we do need to, to make new flu vaccines every year. And even they they of course don't actually work that well. So, uh, but the flu is a harder target, I would say, than the, in than uh, the uh, the coronavirus. So that's the that's the good news. But um, but I think we do need to worry. Uh, about um, mutations in in, in the coronavirus as well. And so that was the problem we set out to solve uh, using some of these ideas from cancer vaccines. So how could we create a more broadly protective vaccine?
0: Uh, So you had this um, uh, epiphany on March 10, (laughs) and uh, you went back to the office and you said... Everybody put down the hammers, put down, you know, whatever tools you are using. Uh, you were hammering away on uh, cancer vaccines starting tomorrow. We will be hammering away on SARS-CoV-2 vaccines instead. And um, how many companies are, are trying to do what, uh, what you do and Why will you be better equipped in in achieving the the goal?
1: So um, there are now um, something like 110 COVID-19 vaccine projects around the world. So that includes both companies and uh, academic groups, both large and and small companies. Um, I think we were quite well equipped to jump into this because uh, of this genetic Uh, approach that we we were using we didn't really have have to change anything we were we're doing in terms of the processes and workflows we just needed to change the sequences that we were putting into into our constructs and um so so that that made the pivot quite rapid and uh and we've also been um very well practiced in this process of iteration and 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 uh modifying what we're putting into, into our, our uh, vectors very rapidly. So we're actually able to, in, in real time, uh, take all the uh, latest SARS-CoV-2 research and, and incorporate it into our vaccine designs. Now, we are probably not going to be the first SARS-CoV vaccine uh, out there. Uh, there's, uh, there are many more clinically advanced uh, vaccine candidates but um, we could be uh, a mitigation against those vaccines failing. So, so that's one way we see our role. Um, and um, so, so I mentioned the mutation risks. risk, there is another risk that applies to the vast majority of the vaccine programs, um, which is called antibody-dependent enhancement. And uh, with many viruses, uh, including dengue prominently, um, we've seen this phenomenon where either your natural immune response, or immune response to to a vaccine can actually make the infection worse. So um, roughly speaking, what happens when you have an immune response, um, your immune system makes antibodies against the virus. So there are molecules that stick to the virus uh, in a way that ideally stop it from being able to infect your cells. But the problem is that um, if the immune system makes wrong kinds of antibodies that don't actually block the virus's ability to to infect cells, now you have this antibody sticking out of the virus. And there are many cells in our bodies that have receptors for antibody tails, including immune cells. So now you've given the virus the ability to infect immune cells. And um, so this... uh, uh, is a key, the key problem for dengue. Um, it was also seen uh, for, with SARS, so, so the previous uh, major coronavirus epidemic, um, or, or SARS-CoV-1, as it's now sometimes called, um, where the SARS candidate vaccines actually made the infection worse in animal models. Um, so we never actually got a SARS vaccine out to the market. It went through safety testing, uh, or, or like four four candidates went through safety testing. And then when they were tested in animals that were virally challenged, uh, they made the infections worse. Now, the scary thing is that the designs of the vast majority of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines or COVID-19 vaccines are identical to those SARS vaccines. So we have this cautionary tale from SARS, but um, we haven't really gone ahead and, and taken that on board.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the, the the vaccine, of course, uh, needs to be developed. And, and the current thinking is that it is worth pursuing parallel uh, strategies as you said, in order to hedge against the failure of a single approach. It, is this what you um, mean when you are saying that uh, a Manhattan project for COVID-19 is needed, that, that the effort needs to be much more um, energetic, much more... Uh, global, many more resources need to be dedicated to it than than they are today?
1: Uh, Absolutely. So um, the original Manhattan Project tried to solve this giant existential problem of uh, developing uh, a nuclear weapon uh, before the Germans did uh, in a a very, very tight timescale. And uh, it succeeded by very carefully defining every technical problem that had to be solved, and then simultaneously pursuing multiple approaches uh, to each problem. So there were several methods for enriching uranium that were were uh, tried in parallel. Uh, plus one method for enriching uranium. There were there were several bomb designs that were developed in parallel, and so on. So that way you can de-risk uh, any any. Uh, of critical bottlenecks that might cause the whole whole project to fail so you don't put all your eggs in one basket so uh, in this essay that uh, on the the screen we uh, Nikolai and I uh, proposed uh, this kind of approach for developing a COVID-19 vaccine so um, taking all the key areas uh, vaccine design vaccine manufacturing clinical trial design clinical trial safety etc and uh, throwing uh, multiple technologies, uh, and actually developing multiple technologies to to address uh, each of them, and um, uh, so we 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 felt that this was a way to compress uh, timelines uh, without compromising on safety uh, to to the point where we could get out uh, get a vaccine out in in six months, and uh, there definitely would be economic incentives to do this. Uh, there's been several analyses of the uh, global economic impact of the lockdowns, which uh, I think the uh, uh, one one argument is that uh, a rational government should uh, be willing to spend somewhere between 0.1% uh, and 1% of the GDP uh, on a vaccine. Um, and uh, so so that's obviously. Orders of magnitude more than is actually being spent. So, uh, uh, so but, that, that
0: also, but also an order of magnitude less than already what uh, the uh, decrease in in GDP in 2020 is expected to be, because many countries are already um, forecasting 10 percent decrease of GDP
1: uh, between 19 and 20. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, uh, what is of course encouraging in the U.S. Um, is that uh, we do now have that's, this. It's good project. news.
0: There is there is something encouraging in the U.S. That's, that's well, uh, well,
1: well. Let's let's see let's let's see about that. But uh, one but uh, one encouraging thing is that a there is of course a major vaccine development effort called Operation Warp Speed, uh, which is a ten billion dollar project that is trying to. Have some kind of centralized framework for running very large uh, vaccine clinical trials, and which is aiming to have 300 million doses of um, a vaccine available by January 2021. So it's not quite the six months timeline, but uh, but it, it is quite an aggressive timeline. Um, so uh, there's some similarities to to this effort and to what Nikolai and I proposed, uh, uh, which are uh, centralized coordination and, and a common regulatory engagement framework, uh, some DOD involvement, um, unified uh, setup for, for clinical trials um, and uh, multi- pursuing manufacturing uh, capability buildup and, and clinical trials in parallel. Uh, so, so that's similar. Uh, I think what is different is that um, this is still very much about vaccines developed by uh, individual vertically integrated companies rather than taking the full Manhattan approach of taking technologies out of those companies and putting them together in an optimal way. And uh, in terms of uh, pursuing multiple approaches in parallel, there are differences in terms of the delivery platforms. So so we have Moderna doing a messenger RNA vaccine. We have uh, the um, uh, the Oxford, uh, Oxford and AstraZeneca vaccine, which is uh, an adenoviral vector, aden- adenoviral vectors, so a viral, viral vaccine, and then uh, and actually the J and J one is also also a viral, viral vaccine, and then there are there are uh, protein based vaccines and so on. But they're all delivering more or less the same thing, so there is not much diversity in terms of the vaccine design, and that's that's why I'm very worried about this uh, comparison to SARS because it is the same design that caused this antibody-dependent enhancement phenomenon in SARS, SARS, for SARS vaccines. So if one of those vaccines fails because of this ADE or antibody-dependent enhancement phenomenon, it's quite possible that they will all fail. Um, so, so I don't think we have enough diversity uh, amongst the leading, leading approaches.
0: And um, what is the role of the, the Gates Foundation uh, in uh, the um, uh, Operation Warp Speed itself uh, and the fact that they appeared to be willing to fund in parallel many different uh, research projects, uh, do they have an, a, a more open mind uh, w- compared to Operation Warp Speed that uh, some some less traditional approaches uh, they would be able to fund as well?
1: So um, I'm not necessarily uh, private to how how Gates found the relationship between between Gates and warp speed. My impression is that the uh, that the Gates Foundation is more uh, heavily involved in supporting uh, the efforts of uh, Cepi, so uh, Center for um, Epidemic Preparedness, uh, which is this international. Uh, Efforts uh, more more focused in in Europe. Uh, Gates Foundation has of course uh, funded uh, a lot of the companies, including Moderna, that are involved in in, in Warp Speed. Uh, but I don't think Gates Foundation itself is directly involved uh, in in Warp Speed. So so there is some some overlap um, between uh, the companies that they've supported, but uh, I don't think they are actually formally part of this now. Uh, bill Gates has stated uh, that uh, he would be willing to fund a scale up of manufacturing for up to seven of the top uh, uh, vaccine candidates in parallel and that would be i think that would be great but um, i haven't heard what the latest um, uh, news on that that are uh, i i do think uh, it, warp speed does seem to be um, Saying that they will do the same thing—that they will set up manufacturing for multiple vaccine candidates even before they are uh, approved for use—which um, which is, I think, the right thing to do. And
0: and 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 uh, and that is, of course, uh, another and different challenge. Even assuming that uh, a vaccine is going to be found uh, mm-hmm. with the right degree of safety and efficacy, um, it still needs to be. Uh, produced in in billions of doses uh, are we on uh, inoculating eggs or it is still the way we do it
1: so that that'll depend on on which um, which kind of vaccine uh, you're talking about the traditional vaccines definitely like the the attenuated or light or, or live vaccines um, are produced in eggs uh, the l- current leading vaccine candidates like um, uh, the modernas mRNA vaccine that would be manufactured enzymatically in a bioreactor so so that would be a chemical a biochemical process that um, still does need to be scaled up and they are in the process of of scaling that up but it's uh, I I would say inherently a simpler process so so that should be more easily scaled Uh, the Adenoviral vector vaccines would be manufactured in uh, mammalian cell culture, um, so um, uh, that's uh, that's another um, another uh, manufacturing class, so that would be big bioreactors with, with uh, tens of thousands of, or hundreds of thousands of liters of uh, mammalian cells producing viruses. And then uh, there's there there are some protein subunit vaccines where you would would actually uh, make viral proteins and isolate them and those would also be cell culture based. I think the um, uh, if I if I remember correctly, Sanofi has a has an insect cell plate plate based platform for producing those kinds of things. But I mean, I think the I don't it, definitely do Timescale, because
0: hmm. uh, let's assume that uh, you and uh, everybody else uh, hmm. uh, working towards the same goal succeed, uh, and we have a vaccine in six months, mm-hmm. w- which is itself already optimistic. Mm-hmm. How
1: long does it take to produce? I don't know a billion doses. Um, yeah. Again, again, depends on um, also what your Short final list. final. Fi- but let's. Profit. Yeah, so let's let's uh, let's do some back of the envelope calculations. So uh, some of the um, mRNA let's let's say it's an mRNA vaccine like Moderna's vaccine or, or or Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine, uh, and it's and let's say we're at the lower end of the dose, like like um, um, uh, ten to fifty micrograms. Let's say ten micrograms to be really ambitious uh, per per dose. Um, I think the current big RNA manufacturing uh, facilities can produce something like 500 grams to a kilogram per month. Now, that can be scaled up with money, for sure. But uh, so, so a 100, uh, hundred, uh, uh, sorry, sorry um, like a, a kilogram of RNA, 10, 10 micrograms, that would already be uh, 100 million doses. So. So it could be a matter of so it could be a matter of months. I mean it, it can be a little more complicated than that for moderns vaccine you then also need to formulate it with,
0: with so, the, so right delivery so,
1: material but but you could you could do not, 100 million it,
0: yeah it's certainly not that that we will need 10 years to 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 do no it.
1: no i think i think with enough resources it's it's definitely feasible to do it in a small number of months
0: so um you had your epiphany. You wrote your uh, Manhattan Project proposal, and 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 uh, and the whole company, as well as your investors, um, jumped on board. Mm-hmm. That's one. Um,
1: yeah, I think I think this was uh, the transition was. So actually, I should give some uh, some credit also to our team because uh, they had uh, already before we made this flip proposed a hackathon. Uh, a, a, a sort of side project on on, on COVID nineteen, so so we had a, even even actually had been thinking about it a little bit, but uh, but then understanding the gaps in the vaccine landscape really uh, made it possible to to jump in. Um, and yeah, the response from our investors certainly was uh, uh, universally positive and supportive. And um, and then uh, some of them, uh, including Sam Altman, uh, gave us some additional backing to to uh, Make sure that we could move fast without worrying about runway or resources.
0: Yeah, that would have been my my next question because uh, traditional assumption is that uh, developing anything health related is like a billion dollars, and maybe that is wrong by itself. But uh, maybe your existing funding was was uh, uh, was something that needed to be complementing, uh, and it needed to be complemented. And and you are confirming that you received some additional funds in order to pursue mm-hmm. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. what what you want to do. So yeah. I, I, so so just to, just a quick comment on that, David. So uh, so it's not really that the the early stage R and D costs billions of dollars. I mean, actually, actually one of the the reasons why I remain very excited about synthetic biology as a field is that the uh, the that you can actually do research now very cheaply with small teams. Uh, a, uh, because, amongst other reasons, DNA synthesis is so cheap. It's really at the clinical stage where it gets very expensive, where where you have to uh, manufacture large amounts of your drug. You have to recruit patients. You have to to uh, make sure that um, uh, you uh, uh, treat them correctly in the clinical environment, and 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 so on. So, uh, so it's not that bad at the stage where we are at, where we are doing. Uh, Relatively rapid uh, animal experiments, but certainly, certainly, will need more resources or partners for uh, the clinical stage.
0: And uh, uh, people who are interested uh, can go to Helix Nano, mm-hmm. and uh, they can also write to Vaccine Manhattan Project at HelixNano.com, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 hopefully uh, you will get uh, more and more people uh, corralling around. Uh, an an idea uh, or the idea that you described, or 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 a variant of the the idea that you d- described, uh, because what you highlighted in terms of the dangers of a, of an approach that too that is too um, uh, even even if there are variations, it is still not representing mm-hmm. a, a, a full spectrum of uh, different approaches, and as a consequence, uh, it could fail um is 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 too frightening we we don't want we don't want periodic lockdowns uh, to characterize the next uh, decade we want to be able to to be uh, together again as as humans
1: um no absolutely and and um just to just to mention david what we're doing on that front so um so given that um we we do have uh, a big effort like like warp speed um on on the sort of more Mainstream side, uh, we are actually now uh, in the process of launching a non-profit to uh, address some of these risk factors that uh, we talked about in the, in the Manhattan Project. So, so actually, uh, a separate entity from Helix Nano, uh, uh, completely with the mission to, to create a common good for vaccine development uh, to resolve some of these big uh, uns- scientific uncertainties that we have, especially around immune enhancement of, uh, of infection. To make sure that we actually end up designing uh, safe vaccines and uh, are able to detect some of these risks early, if they if they are realized, um, hopefully hopefully not. But um, but uh, I think we can, with a relatively uh, small effort, actually make a big difference there.
0: Wonderful, Hanu. Uh, thank you very much for being with us today. Congratulations for your project and uh, good luck uh, with your next steps, uh, including the nonprofit that uh, that you are launching.
1: Thank you very much, David.
0: So uh, thank you, everybody, for uh, uh, being here uh, today with searching for the question live. Uh, if you speak Italian, I invite you to also join and subscribe my Italian uh, language uh, YouTube channel. Uh, you can find it easily on davidorban.com slash YouTube Italiano. Uh, I want to thank uh, uh, our Patreon uh, supporters who help uh, me and my team uh, produce uh, uh, this uh, show as well as the others. And uh, I will uh, see you at uh, the next uh, episode of uh, Searching for the Question Live.